Father, we believe your word that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. So we know that that prayer, lead me to the cross, is one you'll answer. That's where you want us to live, and we need you to teach us how to live there. So teach us how to live at the foot of the cross in our own lives, in our personal lives. We thank you for your word this morning, and now as we open it, we pray that the Spirit of God would take the word of God and apply it to the hearts of of each of us, the people of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome this morning. If you're here new with us, visiting, we're happy that you're here with us. uh, And pray that the Spirit of God will minister to you this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians, the first chapter this morning, so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue in this epistle. I want to mention also we are resuming our study through 2 Kings on Wednesday night, so come on out at 6.30 and join us for that study. Ephesians chapter 1, what I want to do before we dive into our text this morning is to read the list of the spiritual blessings that have been cited for us already in this chapter, and that will provide context for our thoughts this morning. So we're going to begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance." being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Well, maybe you don't feel yourself to be a wealthy person this morning. Maybe you've got bills to pay and you've got obligations to meet and you don't know if you've got enough money to meet those obligations. But certainly, even though you may not be financially or economically wealthy, if you are in Christ, you are wealthier than you could ever imagine in him. And that's what this section is all about. It's about the spiritual blessings which belong to us in Christ in the heavenly places. And we just read Paul's beginning of his list of those spiritual blessings. Repeat the key concepts. 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined unto the adoption of sons, accepted in the Beloved, redeemed through His blood, forgiven of our sins. Uh, we've been uh, aware, made aware of the mystery of His will. We've obtained an inheritance and we've been predestined according to His purpose. And he's just getting started. He's just getting warmed up in this epistle. There's a lot that God has provided for us. So we are in Christ incredibly wealthy. And so we come this morning to verse 13, where Paul says that in him, that is in Christ, in the beloved, in Jesus, in him we trusted. Now the, the thing that we need to understand in verse 13 is that there is a progression. Notice the verse. In him you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, after you heard the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed. There was the hearing of the word of the truth, which is the gospel. Then there was the receiving and believing of that truth. And following that hearing, believing, and receiving, came God's action of sealing us with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what we want to point out at the very beginning here is that even though the passage that we just read, the long passage from verses 3 through 12, in that long passage there are, are many concepts that have to do with what God has done. He's chosen us in Christ. He's predestined us to the adoption of sons. He's predestined us uh, according to the purpose of him who has called us according to his own will. He's predestined, he's predestined, he's called. There's a lot of divine activity going on in the passage. But none of that divine activity can be separated from what Paul says in verse 13. In whom also you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you see what's happening here? There's the divine activity, chosen, predestined. Then there's the human response, trusting after hearing and believing the truth. And they go together. God's predestination was never apart from human choice and his decision to believe the gospel. And, of course, the whole idea here for the one who's interested in being saved if you want to be among the predestined who are to be named as God's adopted sons and daughters, if you want to be among the chosen who have been blessed by being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, then the solution is simple. Your response is simple. Do verse 13. Hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believe and trust in it, and God will seal you with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, we have the beautiful balance between God's sovereign works and human cooperation. And, as Guzik says in his commentary, these ones who were so sovereignly chosen were also the ones who trusted, heard the word of truth, and believed. So how does the salvation happen? Well, first of all, there was the truth of the gospel message that was preached, preached the trusting in that truth, and then the sealing of the Holy Spirit. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Romans in chapter 10. 
verses 12 through 15, which I want to read to you. And in this passage, it talks about this process of salvation. And here's what that text tells us. It tells us that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So it's the process of salvation. First of all, the preacher is sent. The preacher is sent. This is how it works. Uh, Jesus tells us in the Great Commission recorded in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know, there are many of the 7 billion people in the world today who have not heard this gospel message. So our, our task isn't done. Our task is nowhere near to being completed. And then in Titus, Paul writes to Titus and tells us that this eternal life which God has promised has been manifested through preaching. God relegated the hearing of this message of the gospel to the process of preaching, telling the message, verbally telling the message, communicating the gospel. That's what God has decided to use to get the message out. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So that's the very first part of the process of salvation is that the preacher is sent. So here's the thing that's very important for us and I think it's going to be increasingly important for us as we seek the mind and the heart of God in the future. Jesus, when he looked at the multitudes... He saw them with a broken heart. He saw them as being weary and scattered and as sheep that had no shepherd. Defenseless, vulnerable, wounded, hurting, and in great need. That's how he saw the multitudes with his eyes with which he saw them. And so he turns to his disciples and gives them orders. What they should do about that. And it's surprising, really, what he tells them. He doesn't tell them to pick up a trowel. He doesn't tell them to get busy starting this program or that program. The very first thing he tells them to do is he says, The harvest indeed is plentiful. Look at the harvest. The harvest indeed is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send laborers into the harvest. What Jesus tells us to do is send, is to pray to the Father who will send laborers into the harvest. So wherever we see a harvest field, wherever there are sheep that are weary and scattered, like sheep not having a shepherd, wherever that condition exists, anywhere in the world, we are to pray for laborers for that harvest. And what God will do in answer to that prayer is he will send laborers into that harvest and their task will be to preach this message of the gospel of our salvation.
That's what they'll do. They'll preach the message of the gospel. Well, after the preaching, the people hear the message. And we want people to be able to hear. And so Paul prayed to the, uh, and asked the Colossians to pray for him. That the Lord would open up a door for the word. And uh, this is something that he was constantly having the churches pray for him about. So that there would be an open door so that there would be people who would hear the message that was preached when the preacher is sent. And then, following that, the people believe. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So, when the preacher is sent, and then the people hear, then those that will choose to believe, and when they do, then they shall be saved. And they are saved, fourthly, through calling upon the name of the Lord. So Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he wrote to them, those who were called saints, and to those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord. So calling upon the name of the Lord. And Romans 10 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord should be saved. It's a very simple process. But it's a, it's a necessary one. If more people are going to come into the kingdom of God, this is how it will happen. Believers will see the harvest and they'll pray for laborers for that harvest. God will send laborers into those areas of harvest. The preaching of the gospel will take place. People will hear the gospel message that is preached. They will believe it. They will call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. And that's the way it will happen in every place and in every situation. But what that tells me is that I need to be getting to this thing and praying for the labors for the harvest that God commanded us to pray for. And then, of course, as I begin to see the harvest, I'm much more willing and apt, I suppose, to actually do something about it and preach myself when I have opportunity. So I've been praying for that. That's been on my heart. So having believed, verse 13... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what does this mean? Uh, Strong's Dictionary defines the word this way, to set a seal on one as a mark or stamp, refers to the marks of ownership, to stamp with a signet or a private mark for security or preservation. So there are a couple of ideas with this concept of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. The very first idea is that God marks us as belonging to him. He puts the Holy Spirit inside of a human life. The person who believes is sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the body of that individual. That marks that person as belonging to God. And that distinguishes that person from every other person who does not yet belong to God. And somebody would say, well, wait a minute, are you saying that not everyone belongs to God? Not in the sense of being their unique adopted sons and daughters. All are created by God, but not everyone belongs to God in a saving way. Not everyone belongs to God in the sense of being part of God's family. We are alienated from God, naturally, through our wicked works. 
We are separated from God through our own sin. We are enemies of God because of the choices that we make. We are in Adam, not in Christ, naturally. Only when someone repents and believes this gospel message do they go from being alienated from God and an enemy of God to being reconciled to God and being on friendly terms with him because of the gospel. That's only when someone repents and believes the gospel. So no, not everyone is belonging to God. But when someone does seal that, if someone is sealed, excuse me, by the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit, that marks us out as having been owned and as being owned by God. So the question here would be, do I have this sealing of the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit sealed me? And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've truly trusted the gospel, the answer is unequivocally yes. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. But what does that look like in my life? How do I know I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Aha! Now we get to the subject of assurance of salvation. And it is possible for someone to actually have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, to have actually believed in the gospel message and received Christ, and be without assurance. Not really know that they know. Not really being confident that, yes, I belong to God, and God has earmarked me as one of His. But you don't have to continue that way. You don't have to continue living without assurance. Because it is the Holy Spirit's ministry to assure the true believer in Jesus Christ. It's what he does. Romans 8 is very clear on this. God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if you know for sure that you have received Jesus Christ, and you know of a certainty that you are in him and that you have turned from your sins and trusted only Jesus' work on the cross for your salvation, if you know for sure that that is what you have believed in, then you have been given the privilege and the honor of being sealed and you, having been sealed, can know and be completely assured that you are a child of God. So I would say to the one who is operating without that assurance, can I encourage you? Get the assurance. Get it. It's yours. Belongs to you. That doesn't mean get it in the sense of acquiring it, but getting it in the sense of understanding it and believing it. It's yours. Now the evidences of our assurance and of our salvation show up in the way we live. So, for example, if I am truly saved, I'm truly born again, and I truly am in Christ, then that'll show up in my life in some way. If it does not show up in my life in some way, then questions start happening inside of me. I have no assurance. And questions certainly show up in other people's lives if they're watching the way I live. 
because they're looking at me and they're seeing no evidence whatsoever of a changed life. That's not good. So what kind of evidences are there? Well, the fruit of the Spirit would be the evidences. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, temperance, faithfulness. The things listed in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Those are the evidences. When those things are in my life and operating, and I have God's love flowing in my life, then that helps me. But John writes in his epistle that if I say I love God, and I don't keep his commandments, I'm a liar. And the truth isn't in me. So the assurance is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to my heart, telling me that I am a child of God if I've trusted Christ. But the assurance also comes from the way I live and the evidence of the way I live. I can see the Spirit of God working in my life. And if somebody is saying, yeah, I'm a believer, I trust Christ, I'm saved. But you're living a life completely for yourself and doing only what you want to do and you've not submitted to Christ as Lord. He's not your master in any way. Then you should question whether or not you're truly in the faith and others most certainly will question whether or not you're truly in the faith. And that's the way God has set it up. So we need to get the assurance because God has sealed the true believer with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it's a beautiful thing. Now the, ex, the, the next part of this sealing, as in the dictionary definition, Strong's Dictionary, is that the sealing is for security or preservation. That is, God seals us in order to preserve us and keep us safe as one of his own. This is a tremendously beautiful and wonderful truth of the gospel message and the work of the Spirit. And this is frankly the thing that I was most afraid of in yielding my life to Christ years ago. I had tried to live the Christian life on my own. I had tried to make commitments to the Lord and walk with Him. And my efforts would last maybe four or five days before I'd be doing something that was my old life, something the way I was always doing it. And, and that would throw me back into a, a place of frustration. Finally, I just threw up my hands and gave up. And the Lord just chased me down very patiently and brought me to a place where I recognized that I needed him and my life should be focused around the things of Christ, the things that I didn't even want, the things that I weren't, wasn't even interested in. Didn't want to be around Christians. Didn't want to go to church. Didn't want to have to read the Bible. Didn't, I just didn't want that world. I didn't want that lifestyle. I knew what it meant. I, I tasted enough of it, of it to, look, to know what it looked like. And I just didn't want it. But the Lord brought me to a place where I realized I need Jesus. No matter what it looks like in terms of my relationships and even being involved in church life. He convinced me. So here was the thing I was afraid of. I was afraid of making a good start and then not being able to finish. I was afraid of fizzling out again like I had so many times. My best intentions, okay, now I'm finally going to change. I'm going to give up this and I'm going to give up that. And I'm going to really change. I'm really going to do it now. 
I was afraid of making a commitment like that and not being able to follow through because I had failed so many times. And so there I was in that place of brokenness before the Lord, knowing I needed him but afraid to make a commitment because I wasn't sure if I had anything in me to complete the commitment. And so I said something like this to the Lord. And it turned out to be one of the best prayers I could have prayed, probably the best prayer I could have prayed. And this is what the prayer went like. It went something like this. Lord, I'm afraid. But if you'll give me the willingness and keep me willing to follow you, I'll follow you the rest of my life. That's how I prayed. And the Lord took me up on that. And he has kept me. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not been a perfect Christian life, obviously. Nobody is perfect. And there's still a lot of stumbling and a lot of areas in life, much room to grow. But keeping me connected to Jesus, keeping me connected to the source of life, keeping me connected to where I need to go to find help when I struggle, keeping me connected to the source of power, that's what the Holy Spirit has helped me to do. And he's helped you, many of you, to do the same thing. And that's part of the ministry of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He protects us. He provides security for us. It's very, very powerful. And it's all because the Holy Spirit dwells within the life of the believer. And this is yours as well. He will not only save the believer, but he will also provide the sealing of the believer, which means that they belong to him, and that means that they are secure in him, and it means that they are preserved by him. He marks us as his own, that we belong to him. Gabaline says, The seal is therefore the Holy Spirit himself, and his presence in the believer denotes ownership and security. The sealing with the Spirit is not an emotional feeling or some mysterious inward experience. It's a reality. On the basis and the authority of God's Word, I know that I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is a tremendous spiritual blessing. It goes on to describe uh, the next part of this in verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee. The word there, the guarantee, translated in the New King James Version, is the Greek word erabon, which means a pledge. It's a part of the purchase. It's very much like what we do when we put a down payment on a house. Or we put a down payment on a purchase of a car. We're saying to them, this is earnest money. This is promise money. This gives you uh, my pledge that I'm going to complete the rest of the payments. And so my uh, creditor has that assurance because I have given that down payment after they've checked my credit history uh, that I have that which is able to complete the payment. Now, in this case, we're not the ones that are giving the down payment. It's not the believer that's giving the down payment. 
It's not the believer that's making the earnest payment or putting in a deposit. Not at all. It's God himself. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that all of the rest that God is going to give to us is certainly on its way. It's a, and it's an advance payment in security for the rest. Now God didn't have to do that. But he did. He didn't have to give us these kinds of assurances. And you know, I think about what that actually means. That God has given to us the down payment of the Spirit. A promise of all the rest that is on its way. And I think, boy, what has the Lord given me already? Because the down payment looks like the full payment. What has the Lord given to me already? Well, he's, he, I mean, my life is completely different. If I have an enemy, I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me to actually love my enemy. If someone sins against me, the Spirit of God provides power so that I can forgive. If someone is unlovable, in my estimation... The Spirit of God gives me the ability to love the unlovable person. If things are going crazy in my life and nothing seems to make sense, the Spirit of God provides peace and a sense of inner calm that He's in control. I mean, these are some of the things that God does for us. This is down payment. It's the guarantee that all of the rest that He's promised for us is on its way. And in eternity, it's an eternal experience of this down payment as we get the rest of the payment from God himself. The guarantee, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the guarantee that we're going to get everything else that God has promised to us. So how strong is this contract how strong is this guarantee? How strong is this down payment? How certain are we of it? Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? That is, God's going to keep making payments. He's not going to stop making payments. He's not going to interrupt the payment process. He's going to keep making payments. He's made his payment in the Holy Spirit until the purchased possession is fully redeemed. And who is the purchased possession? What is the purchased possession? It's the individual believer that is the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, he is the guarantee, he is the down payment that we are going to receive the inheritance God has promised to us until he redeems us completely. And what does that look like, the redemption of the purchased possession? When is that? And what is that referring to? That's referring to what Paul refers to in Romans 8. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. The redemption of the purchased possession is referring to that moment in time in the future. 
when the Lord Jesus Christ changes us completely and gives us the new body that he's promised us. This last week we're at the memorial service for my cousin Bob. He accepted Christ about four months before he passed away. It was a real conversion. He got baptized in the hospital. That was an interesting experience to try to figure out how to do that in a sink. But they improvised. And his testimony was that he loved and trusted in the Lord Jesus. So it was great to be able to be there at his memorial service and, and speak of the things that were true of him and are true of him right now. But there my cousin was, last time I saw him in the hospital, with lung disease, hooked up to all kinds of machines, couldn't breathe except for the help of these machines, He just didn't look like my cousin Bob at all. But inside of that weak and failing and struggling and anemic body of his that was dying was my cousin Bob, who had asked the Lord Jesus to come into his life as his Savior. And so when he drew his last breath, and when his spirit departed from his body, which had failed completely and now was dead, When that moment took place, he moved. Bob moved. He wasn't in that corpse that was there lying on the ground or on the bed. He wasn't in that anymore. He moved. He's now in a body that God has prepared for him. And that body is much like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead and was exalted and was glorified. That kind of a body. With no defect whatsoever, with no weakness whatsoever, with no flaws whatsoever, able to contain God to the fullest. Able to inhabit heaven. Able to actually be there in the presence of God himself and survive the experience. That's the redemption of the purchased possession. And that's what God has promised, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, God is faithful. He's going to stay at it. He's going to continue to guard his investment. And we are going to eventually have and experience the redemption of our body. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. Then shall that saying be fulfilled, which says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your is your strength. You see, the Lord has been victorious. You can say hallelujah. hallelujah. God is faithful. Jesus said that he gives eternal life to his sheep and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of his sheep's hands. He is at work to keep us and to preserve us. My part is to trust him to keep and preserve me. He perfects that which concerns us. 
But the greater burden is upon the Lord himself, don't you think? Don't you think it's much more his responsibility than it is ours? Don't you think it's much more his power than it is ours? His faithfulness, his willingness to keep us? I've told this story before, but many years ago when my son, who's now 32, was about seven, I decided to take him fishing out in the Monterey Bay, and we had this little 14-foot outboard that we were out there on Point Pinos fishing for rock cod. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to introduce my son to the world of deep-sea fishing. He's going to love it, and we'll have this thing we can do together because I love to fish, and, and it's just going to be great. Well, it wasn't so great for Nate because <laughs> he's not like his dad. I've never been seasick, but he was turning different colors out there, and I knew he wasn't having a good day, and it was going to be time soon to go in. So it was kind of rough out there, and I could see why he got a little nauseated, and, you know, the little small boat was rolling in the swells that were maybe three, four feet. And, uh, you know, so I can see why he got seasick. So we went in and, you know, caught a few fish, but went in. That was no problem. He didn't ever want to go again. (laughs) But later I got to thinking about that whole experience. You know, we had life jackets on, but what would have happened? Because we weren't that far from the rocks out there off of Point Pinos. And had he been pitched overboard, even with the life jacket on, you know, he'd have been, if nobody could catch him, he'd be moved by the surf and by the swell in towards those rocks, it could have been gnarly. I'm in Santa Cruz now, I can use that term, gnarly. It would have been gnarly, and he'd have been, you know. So I I got to thinking, what would have happened if he'd have got pitched overboard? And then I got to thinking about a specific part of that. What would have happened if he got pitched overboard, and I was there to save him, what would I do? And I thought, well, one thing I could do is I could reach out my arm like this. I could say, Nate, grab on, and I'll pull you in. Because I'm strong enough to pull him in. He's seven years old. And with adrenaline and everything, I probably could do a one-arm curl and get him in the boat. So just hang on, Nate, and I'll get you in the boat. So he latches on and holds on tight, and I pull him in. And what if he slips? What if he can't hang on? What if his grip isn't strong enough? What if he can't hold on to his dad well? Does that mean he drowns? Does that mean he gets pitched into the rocks? And so I immediately dismissed that as my technique to save my son. I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have reached down and I would have grabbed him with the strongest possible grip with which a father can grip his son. And I'd have had him in my hand and I would have pulled him into that boat. With one arm, if necessary, he would have been safe and secure because of my commitment to get him into that boat. Do you think for a second I would rely upon his measly, puny grip of my arm to get him into safety? Not at all. As a father, as a loving father that's concerned for his son, I would rely upon my superior strength and my superior grip to get him into that boat and bring him safe and sound again. Now listen, Jesus himself compares our love as fathers to the love of our Heavenly Father. 
And he says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If I, as a human father, would do that for my human son, what do you think our Father in heaven does for us? What do you think his commitment is for us? It's certainly stronger than even my commitment to my son or to my daughter. Or to my stepson. His is much stronger than that. Because after all, he's God and we're not. So he's the one that keeps. He's the one that preserves. He's the one that keeps. He's the one that preserves. And we trust him to do that. We trust him to get us through to the finish line. We rely upon him and his power. And he will keep me, and he will give me the motivation to follow him. And that means that in him and by him, we can do anything he wants us to do. He's faithful to his promise. The result of this divine commitment or contract is found at the end of verse 14, and this is where we'll close. It's all to the praise of his glory. He seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is our arabone, our guarantee, our down payment of our inheritance. And all of this is to the praise of His glory. And the reason why it's the praise of His glory is because only God could have done so much with us and been so faithful to us. Only God could do that sort of thing and only God is that kind of a being. No one else is like him. It's to the praise of the glory, of his glory. We praise him for it. Amen? Amen. We praise him for it. We thank him for it. And you know what? We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of a thing. I don't know if I want to do that thing. I don't know if I can open my heart to the Lord for that level of commitment. I don't know if I can go in that direction. I don't know if I can... Fulfill that calling. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I have it. Doesn't matter if you have it. Doesn't matter if it's in you or not. Probably isn't. What does matter is it in Him? Is the Spirit of God strong enough? Is He powerful enough? Is His Word enough? That's our commitment, is to just trust Him. That's the idea. And it's all to the praise of of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us to just look at a couple of very important points, things that you wanted us to know about the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the true believer. And you wanted us to know these things so that we could rejoice in these truths as part of our spiritual blessing. And we do. And now we pray that you would translate these things into our lives. That we could live this way, Lord, trusting in your infinite, immeasurable resources. Thank you so much for the work that you've done in our lives up to this point. Thank you for the work that you're doing right now. And I know for some, these are challenging times. These are times of the testing of their faith.
But thank you for your faithfulness, even in times of severe testing. And Lord, thank you for what you've promised in the future. You've promised to keep us. You've promised to work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. That's what you've promised. We love you for it. I want to take just a moment to speak to anyone here this morning that has not made a personal commitment to Jesus. You don't know if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You don't know if you're a child of God for sure. You don't know for sure what will happen if you die. You don't know for sure where you'll go, heaven or hell. You're not sure that you're saved. You're not convinced that you have eternal life. You don't know if your sins have been forgiven. Well, the Bible is clear. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be saved. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, and you confess that he is Lord with your mouth, and you in your heart believe that God raised him from the dead, if you believe in Jesus and trust him, make a commitment to him, the Bible promises he will give you the gift of eternal life. So the decision is yours. You don't have to live in this uncertainty any longer. You can be certain by placing your faith in the one who is solid and steady and who has made great promises to you and me. So my question is, is that you this morning? Have you made a commitment to Christ? If not, are you willing to make one this morning? I'd like you to ask you to stand right where you are. If you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, and you don't know where you're going when you die and depart from this planet, stand right now. And by standing, you'll be saying, I want to make a commitment right now. I want to trust Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. I want to believe the gospel. I want to commit my life to him. Stand right, right where you're seated, and we'll have a word of prayer with you and help you with the beginning stages of what it means to live a Christian life. Anybody this morning here? Anybody listening to this CD later or listening to it online or watching the video online? Anyone watching the video online right now? The live feed. You can make that decision right where you are. I just ask that you make contact with us later. Let us know. This was your commitment so we can pray with you and follow up with you. Anybody this morning? Thank you, Lord, for those that have heard. And thank you for the word of God that goes into our hearts, the truth of the gospel. And we pray for soft hearts that will hear this, soft hearts that have heard this, a willingness to be reconciled to you, our Creator. Thank you, Lord. Break down the barriers to faith. You know what they are in individuals' lives. Bind the strong man, Lord, that the gospel can spoil his goods. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.